The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. We use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown. I'm not coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, but uh, we are pre recording the show uh, due to some time differences that we have with our guests this morning. I'm the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us. Uh, if you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. If you'd like to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the faces made for radio, head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. We're streaming live right there. And also, you can catch that video feed on my Twitter account at FPPTim. We're on Periscope and Twitch at Setting Brushfires. Facebook is Bradley Dean SOL. Our YouTube channel is B Dean Sons of Liberty. And beforeitsnews.com, we're right there on the front page as well. And finally, on dlive.tv at The Sons of Liberty. And then if you're reaching out on other social media platforms, Spreely Gab, MeWe Minds, and USA.life at Sons of Liberty and Sons of Liberty Media. And uh, phone lines are not open, so we're not, since it's pre recorded, we're not going to have any questions today. Uh, but uh, do want to take time to introduce our guest. We've been trying to get uh, G. Edward Griffin on for quite a while. And happy that he's able to join us today. He's a writer, a documentary, film producer, a founder of Freedom Force International. He's listed in the Who's Who in America. He's well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. He's dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System, international banking, terrorism, uh, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, we need several hours, I'm just telling you, just to go through some of this stuff. Uh, the Supreme Court and the United Nations, uh, and a plethora of other things that he's been involved with. And it's, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the Sons of Liberty, G. Edward Griffin. Welcome. Well, thank you, Tim. That's quite an introduction. Now we do we do need a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days to cover all that. Well, but, uh, you you have a, <laughs> you have a standing invitation to come back at any time. Maybe we can sort that out because I know you have a very busy schedule. And uh, what I thought we would do is that we would kick something off. I was telling you before we we started the recording here that uh, what I want to start off with is to take you back in time just a little bit. Uh, black and white footage. Uh, when people referred to video as motion picture. And a just a, a, a brief 
clip from something you did, and we'll have this up in the archive at sonsoflibertymedia.com <clears throat> where we archive the show. But this is from 1968. Now, this would be the time that, depending on what time of year you gave this, uh, I would have been in uh, literally in my mother's belly. I was born in 1969, January of 1969. So I would have been uh, in my mother's belly. This is what you had to say at that time. As soon as my clicker clicks. <laughs> oh. The title of this presentation is More Deadly Than War. But the subject matter itself is revolution. We're going to examine in quite a bit of detail the communist theory and practice of revolution, particularly as applied to the United States. Now this will not be something dreamed up out of thin air. This will be the strategy as taught by them and advocated by them in their own manuals, in their textbooks, and in their schools. Now the organization of this material will lead to three rather startling conclusions. The first is that the communist program for revolution in America is divided into two phases, violent and nonviolent. The second conclusion is that the strategy for violent revolution calls for chaos, anarchy, mass confusion and panic among the people, a crisis in government, and then, out of the vacuum, the sudden seizure of power by communist-led guerrilla bands. The third conclusion is that the non-violent phase of revolution actually is more important to the communists and more potentially dangerous to us. Now, the strategy for this phase calls for the gradual transition of our government into a communist regime, done peacefully and legally, but under the banner of socialism. All right, let's let's stop right there. You've had fifty years since that that statement there. I'm sure there were people that came out at the time uh, that said, "You're a conspiracy theorist, right? It's the this is the way to shut you down is to say, oh, you're just a kook." But as you look back fifty years, what do you see transpiring? Well, actually, back in that day, Tim. Um, the the argument that uh, being a conspiracy theorist was somehow um, you know an indication of one's uh, foil tinfoil hat uh, capability had not yet been fully developed. In those days, the the way to silence your opposition was uh, more to just to uh, call them names. We see that, of course, still going on today. Uh, you're a racist. Uh, you're a radical. You're an extremist. You're an anti-Semite. Uh, you're a nutcase, you're a dangerous person, you're a liar, you're a cheat, you cheated on your income tax, you cheated on your wife, uh, you, you've got uh, all of these, these horrible things in your past, you molest children, you know, they make up things, and if they can find anything real in your background, they sure play on that, but they don't need anything real. But back in that day, that was the primary tactic, and they hadn't really focused on this conspiracy theorist sort of thing so, so much. Uh, people in those days, uh, Tim... Uh, I'm happy to report that's not true anymore, but it, primarily they were disinterested. They couldn't see that what I was talking about had any relevance at all to reality. They thought that that I was just somehow uh, you know, going into ancient documents that didn't apply to the real world today anymore. And so they they weren't even interested in hearing about it. They, they just, what do I want to listen to all that nonsense for? I mean, that... Yeah, they might have written those things in their textbooks back in the 1920s or something, but that was gone. That was then. This is now. So that is an important uh, distinction. Today, of course, uh, 
we see it on our streets, and um, we we see it on our television, and we hear it being uh, yelled at us by sometimes even our neighbors. Um, we see it everywhere, so there's no longer that issue of what is he talking about. Uh, it's a question of, wow, uh, this is really happening. I guess he was lucky. How did he know that? And so uh, there's been a change at that level of awareness on the part of the American people and people around the world. Other than that, nothing has changed because the strategy cannot change. It's it's hardcore. It's what they call uh, Marxist-Leninist strategy. And you have to follow it if you're going to be a Marxist-Leninist. If you're not, well, then you're... Uh, you're a defector, so to speak, and uh, you might even get destroyed, you get killed by your own people because you're a defector, and uh, you're not hearing the line. That was largely the big rift between the Soviet group of communism and the Chinese group of communists, the Russians and the Chinese, each one arguing that they were the the most uh, uh, closely adhering to the the classical Marxist-Leninist strategy, and the other guys were deviants and so forth. So um, if you understand how these people think, as as I do and did at that time, you understand that they cannot deviate from that and still call themselves Marxist-Leninists, which they, they want to do, of course. Um, the reason I happen to know about these things, and uh, perhaps it's worth mentioning briefly here, is that when I got curious about all this back in the 1960s, I hung out at the communist bookstore. <laughs> I went down there to see what these guys were like. I was curious. I, I, so I, I hung out down there. Literally, I go down there at least once a week, usually on a weekend or after Friday, coming home from work. And it was called the People's Bookshop, down in uh, Larchmont Street in Los Angeles. And uh, you know, they tried to recruit me into the party. I attended some of their so-called study groups and so forth. But the point is, I, I bought all their literature, all their basic, hardcore. Marxist-Leninist literature. I read all everything that Marx had written, Das Kapital and Communist Manifesto. And then Lenin was a, a prolific writer. Uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin really, uh, he was the guy you wanted to read because the difference between a Marxist, I learned, and a Marxist-Leninist, sounds like gobbledygook, but to these people it's a big difference between just being a Marxist or being a Marxist-Leninist. The idea is, of course, that if you're a Marxist, then you believe what all of the theories of Karl Marx. You've read Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto, and you, you believe in this this uh, theory of collectivism and the class warfare and all of that, and a lot of slogans involved there. It's, it's very very appealing to young people uh, because it all sounds so high high motivated and high ideal. You know, an end to war, an end of racism, and so forth, and end of exploitation of the working class, and from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, and all of these slogans, it sounds great. Um, but then, uh, so you get, a lot of, you get a lot of Marxists who are really idealistic people, and a lot of teachers in school are the Marxists. But now the thing, a Marxist-Leninist, is quite different, because now you're dealing with people who have not only read Karl Marx, but they've read Lenin. And Lenin uh, was the, uh, the originator of the Communist Party, now, the Communist Party is an organization. It's not just a bunch of people who have read a book and say, gee, I like what that guy said in the book. No, they joined an organization, and they're, they're part of a quasi-military and psychological conquest. They're going to not just talk about Marxism. They're going to conquer a nation and, and pass the rules and execute the people who disagree with them. They're coming to power. 
to power. And that was the word that, that Lenin used over and over again. He said, uh, he said, comrades, I don't care what you think and how smart you are and all the books you've read, but if you don't come to power first, you're just wasting your time. So you don't just forget all your rhetoric. It's just rhetoric. All we have to do is come to power, and then we can debate. Because once we're in power, people will not debate with us because they'll know if they disagree with us, we can shoot them. So he was very blunt about all these things. So uh, I learned all of that stuff. And so I came, when I came to this issue of the theory of communist revolution, I did so from the point of view of going through like a graduate uh, class. I was, I was in their study groups. I read this stuff. I talked to the comrades. Uh, we, and we looked at films. And we had you know, question and answer periods. And then I saw it begin to play out. Uh, I, I saw it happen in the, the first riots that happened in Detroit. I was born and raised in Detroit. I happened to be there at the time. I didn't actually see the riots. I was on a different edge of town, but it was happening in my hometown. So anyway, that's all background, and uh, so you're asking basically what's the difference between then and now. Uh, it's, it's more, the difference is primarily in the level of interest on the part of the American people. The uh, amount of understanding hasn't changed very much, because even though a lot of people are alarmed and they can see this violence in the streets, they don't understand the essence of what they're looking at. They're taking it at face value like they're supposed to. They see people on television throwing firebombs and burning buildings and, and destroying property and, um, and beating up on each other and, uh, and uh, you know, bashing in windows on cars and, and killing the police. And they oh my gosh, what's happened to America? And what they don't realize is that they're looking at America through a little tiny window called television. And all of what they're seeing, almost almost all of it, is theater. It's staged just yes. to be in front of those cameras. Yep. You get away from the cameras and you don't see that. You see the, uh, the emotional spin-off, of course, a lot of division, a lot of animosity, a lot of hatred, and a lot of confusion and a lot of fear. Fear is the biggest thing. But, you, but people think because they see this on the television and they hear it on the radio and on their, tel- on their computer screens, they think that's actually what's happening in America. They don't realize that it's theater and it's stage. They, if, they could just, if they could just be there when the cameras move off to the left a little bit, away from the violence, <laughs> yes. and go to the side street and see all those buses lined up and where, where all these people came in from out of town who were committing the violence, and they see them get off the buses and, and, and get their bags, their lunch bags and so forth, they said, then they would realize that, wait a minute, this isn't grassroots America. This is an organization. This right. is a strategy. This is theater. Th- these are the actors, you see. So anyway, I'm rambling a little bit. but uh, well, the, Can I, the can I interrupt on, you to yeah, ask go ahead. a question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I want to get, get straight uh, for the people who are listening. When you were describing the difference between the Marxist and the Marxist-Leninist, it seems to me the Marxists are kind of the guys who sit around the coffee shop. They say, oh, I agree with this, and they have the, the – I don't even know if it's high-minded conversations, but they're willing to engage people in that. They're trying to convince people. They're the debaters. They want to do this. But they're really not advancing anything. I, I mean, were you able to, to get some of those people off of what they were thinking versus the guys who say, like, if they follow uh, Lenin, there's, they're out there uh, being the community organizers, if you will. They're the guys who are advancing things. They're getting into politics, and they're taking those ideas and trying to push them into legislation. A- am I missing something there, or is that exactly kind of how no, it is? No, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, okay. There's a, a great difference in the attitude and the motivation of the people. You're quite right. The Marxists are the idealists. And uh, they really believe at the deepest level that what what they're advancing and supporting is going to be the best thing for the human race. 
they think that this thing capitalism they they actually think that we have capitalism today they don't realize that capitalism has been gone real classic yes. free enterprise capitalism been gone since world war 2 at least and uh, but the, you know so they think that capitalism is the root of all the problems today and so they think that you know if we can just get rid of, of selfishness and and private property and uh, morality that based on some abstract principle instead of uh, you know on uh, uh, compromise and so forth. They th- they really think it's going to be an end to war and it's going to everybody's going to be happy and so forth. But the Leninists, the Marxist Leninists, no, 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 because once you read Lenin, you realize that Le- basic, basically Lenin's message, as I mentioned before, is to come to power. And he says in quite blunt language, he said, "Look, if it takes lies uh, to come to power, then absolutely let's lie about it." He said, if, if you go to a nation and you want to take over that nation and they're fiercely patriotic and they like their culture and they like their way of life, do you stand up and say, we're going to change your culture, we're going to destroy everything you hold dear, uh, come join with us? No. You tell them that, that you're going to preserve the culture, that you're their nationalist, that you believe in their culture, and you're going to condemn communism. You're going to offer yourself as an anti-communist leader to preserve the, the, the principles that, that people want and cherish. That's what you're going to do, comrade. And then, then when you come to power, you kill those people that support you. That's what Lenin teaches, you see. Yeah. So that's a whole different mindset. The, 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 the Marxists, uh, we can deal with. I mean, they're good people, most of them. Some of them are getting a little ruthless, you know, because sure. they have these leaders that prod them into that ruthless position. But at deep in their hearts, they, they want what's good for mankind. So that's an important difference. Yeah. Now, when you say that, this is something that we've said on the show. Uh, the morality that we have, uh, and I, it, I believe it comes from the scriptures. I believe it's based on the Mosaic Institution. We go back in our history and we see the states establish their laws based upon the law of God. And when you have the Marxists come in, when you have the communists, all these factions of that, they come in, they're not basing it on that at all. Um, it's sort of the whim of law of tooth and fang in the jungle kind of deal. And then the ones who rise to the top are the ones who control the morality, if you will. Uh, just as you were saying before, and I mentioned conspiracy theory at the first. Uh, you know, the scripture says in Jeremiah eleven nine, and the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. And I think this is where these guys have done. They, they're leaving the foundations, yet they've learned. And um, the guy who does the... Um, radio show in the afternoon for Sons of Liberty, Bradley Dean, he's pointed this out too. When we have an issue like the presidential election that's just taken place, you have Joe Biden coming up and saying basically all this stuff that is what American would, in their right mind, would vote for a guy like that. Then you have a Donald Trump that comes up and tells you all these American things, while we also know he's doing all these unconstitutional things Mm -hmm. um, and uh, engaging in, I mean, the debt, uh, you could you could probably speak on that for several hours based off of the, the phony baloney money printing out of the Federal Reserve, the debt that we're incurring that's incurring on our children's backs, uh, the other unconstitutional – I could list a ton of them here on the show, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not wanting to get into the specifics of that. But we see that kind of playing out. One guy saying, I'm all American, yet some of the things he's doing, USMCA and other things like this, is not American at all. It's actually globalist um, in, in, in nature. <clears throat> 
Do you well, see I'm glad some you of brought that, that up that because out? we you go back to that uh, little segment that you played at the beginning of the program, and I mentioned the fact that there are two types of revolution. There's the violent and the nonviolent. The, the violent one is the one we've been talking about so far, all this destruction and hatred and bomb throwing and fires and uh, accusations and blood in the streets. And that is in a country like ours that is not intended to take over the country because they, they know that uh, this is a nation with, that's not going to go for that. It might, you know, another generation or two of kids coming out of the school, they'll support it, but they're not going to go for that. But they need that to scare people to be more tuned to the second kind of revolution, which is the nonviolent one. So here we always have these two sides to choose from, and they're both heading in the same direction with the same goals, but they're approaching it from different ways. So we have the violent revolution that scares people to support the nonviolent revolution, which is the passing of legislation. And all of the things you're talking about, those are leading more directly to the communist takeover of America than the violent revolution. But all we can see is the violent revolution, and so we have s- some other politicians that oh, we got to put an end to the violence. This is terrible. So what I'm going to advocate is then we start talking about the legislation, which is another step to communism. So we get it through the ballot box. We get it through legislation instead of a violent takeover, you see. And that's why it's important to see the two aspects of revolution, because otherwise you'll think that the violent one is the only one, so anybody who opposes violence has got to be the good guy, and that is just the opposite of the truth. I totally, that was just, that was fantastic. That is what we've been trying to tell people for I don't know how long, to help them understand that you're being played by both sides. They're both mm-hmm. advancing the same agenda. One just has the mask off, as it, as it were. The other mm-hmm. one still has the mask on. A, a guy used the uh, terminology that uh, one is like the Harlem Globetrotters and the other one's like the Washington Generals. And the Washington Generals is just kind of there to, 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 to be the uh, you know, appearance of an opposition when really they're, they're helping the other team. And yeah. I used the term WWE, the wrestling match. And, of course, we've seen... Mr. Trump and doing his wrestling things. But you're exactly right. That is the advancement. And the people, it seems to me, this is what's so disturbing. The people who call themselves conservatives, Christians, constitutionalists, are more than willing to give passes on unconstitutional, tyrannical legislation, executive orders, and treaties that infringe upon our sovereignty, that infringe upon our rights, they're willing to do that because the guy's wearing their political jersey. Um, Is that something that you saw coming in 1968? Absolutely, because that is Marxist-Leninist strategy. They say that's in the book. That's in the textbooks. They teach that. And, uh, but who reads that stuff except the uh, Marxist-Leninists and people like myself who just stumble into it for some reason? I don't know how. I don't know what drove me over to that communist bookstore that day, but it changed my life forevermore. So it, it's, a, it's a hard lesson to believe because Americans and all people around the world of good will, they don't, they don't understand that there are people dedicated to deception and conquest and to, they want to rule us. They really have this, this megalomania uh, uh, for power. And uh, they may start off thinking that it's, it's the betterment of society and all that, but once they get, they get a taste of the power and, and, and the money that comes with it, the prestige that comes with that success, I, I, don't, I don't think there are very few, there are not many people, I should say, that can resist the temptation to be corrupted by that. And so they may have started off with high ideals, but let me explain to you clearly. Once they get past the midpoint on that ladder of power, the ones that climb all the way to the top 
are no longer driven by idealism. Yeah. Well, I've noticed, too, because I've had some conversations with young people who uh, espouse the utopia of Marxism. And I often ask them, I said, um, instead of pushing it on everybody else, why don't you lead by example? And I find quickly that, 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 that you can show them you're not even leading by example. You're doing the very thing that you say you're against. Uh, for instance, I, there was a young man. Uh, he came to our church one time. We had a church plant. And he was trying to tell all the, all the kids about this utopia of the, you know, each according to his ability to each according to his need. And I said, well, <clears throat> you're, you're working a job. You, you have a car. Yeah, you have a cell phone, you have internet, you have an apartment. Why are you giving up those things for the people who don't? And he just kind of looked at me like, what? And I said, you're not practicing what you're preaching, man. I mean, if you're going to lead, at least do what you're saying. But he couldn't get that, and I think most of those people don't get it. It's like you said, they think it sounds good because it's going to make everybody uh, give them an even playing field and all this kind of thing when nothing could be further than the truth. And then there's always those people who are ready to pounce on that and move forward. And the things you were saying, let me let me jump to today. When you say they're using certain things, what's your perspective on what they're doing with this whole, I call it a pandemic scandemic, because I've read some of the documents. I think it's been planned for a long time. Um, I believe they're, they're out to push people towards a vaccine. They're getting mass mandates, which are unconstitutional, unlawful, and all of these things. I think they're testing the American people's steel to see whether they should keep advancing or whether they should back off and try it again another time. What, what do you what say you? Well, the Marxist-Leninist strategy, and forgive me to always to come back to that, is very clear on that. Um, Lenin made it made it very clear. I think the way he phrased it, it was uh, two steps forward, one step backward. Two steps forward, one step backward. Two steps forward, one step backward. The idea is that you you make an advance against your opponent, and then he's alarmed, and so he's getting all motivated to resist you. But then, just as he's about ready to start fighting you, you back away and let him have a victory. He said, oh, okay, it's not so bad after all. And then you go on, and then two steps forward. And so back and forth, back and forth, the seesaw motion is how Lenin phrased it. Uh, it, He said that's the most psychologically uh, effective way to keep your opponent in a state of uh, confusion and to keep him from fully mobilizing against you. It's to let him think that he's winning sometimes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, that's the way it has always been with Marxist-Leninist strategy, is to uh, let people think that, uh, that there is a, a chance for them to win by doing nothing more than, you know, complaining. Uh, that may, It's all going to work out pretty well after all. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, it's not surprising to me. But the thing that's new, and I think this is significant, I did not see this coming because I, I was not aware of this thing called technocracy. Now, technocracy is sort of like a um, communist revolution uh, 201 instead of 101 because uh, it's still based on the old principles. There's no question about that. What they're trying to achieve is a society based on the ideology of collectivism, where the group is considered to be more important than the individual, and therefore you can sacrifice the individual uh, and many individuals as long as you can claim that it's for the greater good of the greater number. See, that's under, underneath communism and fascism and Nazism, all of these isms. That's, its real name is called collectivism. So that's still there, very much in place. That'll never change. It's the hard rock of everything. But now the tools by which they apply that have changed because of, te- of technology. Uh, 
And uh, so now they're, they realize that people are getting pretty wise and fed up with, wise to and fed up with politicians. You know, they're, they're, they're not good guys. They're cheats. They're, they're thieves. They, they're corrupt. So uh, what do we do about these politicians? So now the idea is, well, let's just get rid of them, but replace them not with them. Uh, not with a politicianless system or controlless system, but replace them with computers and scientists who are totally objective. They have no axe to grind. You see, they're like they're like gods. Uh, they, they're pure because they're, they say that they're scientists and they wear a white coat and they they know a lot <laughs> and uh, and so forth. So now now we're seeing a transition in the middle of all of everything else. A transition to where. The so-called scientists or this, the scientific politicians are rising to the top, and they're the ones making the decisions. And the guys, like the mayors and and the and the governors and even the president, they stand there silently uh, while they listen to some uh, a Dr. Fauci or somebody like that, who's who's supposed to be a scientist, when actually he's nothing more than a another corrupt politician, but he, now he's posing as a scientist. And he speaks now, not in the name of the public good so much, or the fairness or justice, but he speaks in terms of saving your life and public health, and we've got to save lives, you know. So now, who can argue against that? It's the same game and, and the same tools, but it's taken on a new flavor. It's, it's like they put a new, a new chess character on the board. We didn't have this character before. Now, in addition to the, to the queen and the king and the knights and the bishops and all the pawns and, and so forth, now we got the scientist. We got a guy on the chessboard. And he plays, he's got his own move. So it's an addition to the same old game. And the underlying, here's the point I'm trying to lead to. The underlying motivation, human motivation that makes this all work is fear. The whole object of Marxist-Leninism is to create fear. And not just Marxist-Leninism, by the way. I mean, the mafia works pretty much the same way. You've got to create fear on the part of your victims so that they will be very, very receptive to your suggestions of cooperation. And, of course, if you're afraid of having your city burned to the ground, if you're afraid of roaming squads of... of, um, of uh, insane mobs rolling around up and down the street, burning houses and and stealing everything and killing people. If you're worried about that, you're going to listen to almost any proposal that the so-called opposition will come up with. Well, we'll just give up a little liberty so we can we can have martial law, right? So you, we don't have to worry about this this uh, this violence. So we'll just have martial law, right? And people say, yeah, let's have martial law, which is of course what they want. Because once you get that, they'll never let go of it. So it's the fear that drives that. Well, now we've got this new element. Now we've got this scientist on the on the chessboard. So now the fear is against a pandemic of some kind of an invisible disease. It's not really killing anybody, but we think it is because the statistics are always there. We turn on our television and there's some straight-faced uh, newscaster say another 200,000 cases, whatever case is, have been reported today and we're going to have to lock this thing down if we're going to save lives, you know. And of course, nobody's dying. I mean, it's the, the number, total right. number of deaths is not changing at all. But it, it's it, it's theater. It, it, oh, we, I just heard it on television. It must be happening. I don't know where it's happening, but it must be happening. You see? And yeah. So where's all fear. the funeral? Where's all the funerals yeah. at? They're not. They're not. We can come back to that. But the numbers haven't changed. But just the the rhetoric. So it's fear again, but now instead of fear of terrorism or foreign invasion or something physical, it's fear of a invisible disease. That's the only change, but the underlying strategy is exactly the same. 
Yeah, and one of the things that you know we all we always come back to again. We use the Constitution of the Bible when we're when we're looking at this, and you talk about this push of fear. You know, and God has told us in Second uh, Timothy one seven, God's not given us a spirit of fear, uh, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And that all incorporates to what you're talking about. It says we see these things before us that are being put before us. Now, how do we determine? Are they truth or are they a lie? You've written um, a book on the issue of cancer, a world without cancer, and it's on the story of vitamin B17, which I, you know, we have um, uh, Kate Shimarani, a nurse from the U.K., who's just been getting pummeled as she's telling the truth about what they're doing with COVID and coronavirus and what's happening in the uh, National Health Service and all of this other stuff. And they're literally out to try to uh, charge her with domestic terrorism, five years in prison for free speech of exposing what they're doing with their own documents. And um, But you've got this, and she was one who taught me that, oh, yeah, you should eat those apple seeds because they got B17 in them. So I started doing that. But it seems to me that you're onto something even in that, that we're sort of in this uh, healthcare system that deals with um, putting Band-Aids on symptoms and not really healing people. We talk about going back to, you know, what God instructed us to eat out of the earth um, and, and things of that nature. It's build up our immune system, keep us healthy and things. And it seems like you're already onto that. And now you've, you're talked about Dr. Fauci. Uh, I don't think he speaks that way, an unelected bureaucrat. He wants to sell you the medicine. Why? Because he's got some money invested in all of it, just like a lot of these cats that are, that are trying to do that. And I think the whole thing is to push us towards a vaccine. We had Dr. Carrie Madej on. Uh, she's from the Dominican Republic, originally from the United States. And she was talking about some of the stuff they put in the vaccines and the technology behind it. She said, why would you have to have a, a vaccine at like 70 or 80 degrees Celsius below zero? And she wrote me back uh, yesterday to say, I, really have, I believe it has something to do with the technology that's within it. And we're not just talking about just the regular things of mercury and other things like that, but actual nanotechnology that's in the, in the virus. I don't know what you think about that, but it seems to me that's a good way to move into the whole aspect of controlling the people and uh, and, and pushing on them exactly what you're talking about from the, the communist perspective, the, the Marxist-Leninist perspective on the people to where there'll be good little obedient workforce, which is what the public indoctrination centers are putting out and which the federal government isn't supposed to have anything to do with, according to the 10th Amendment, but they continue to push that kind of a mindset. Well, I think it's absolutely true. And uh, the, the, the problem with that uh, aspect of the vaccine program is that what are they putting into the vaccines? Are they possibly putting something into those vaccines, either A, to control us, to, to weaken our uh, ability to resist, to make us passive, or to actually access our thoughts and moods and, and attitudes and, and all those questions. Or maybe they're trying to thin the population. Maybe they want to just uh, make sure that we don't procreate. You know, things, all of these questions come up. And the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, let's be clear on this, the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming that this is all true. But now, where are the whistleblowers? And, uh, and where's the hard evidence? I'm beginning to see some of that come forth, but not enough because people don't want to believe this. I mean, this is like science fiction, you know? Uh, this, is, this could never really happen. This is uh, like an invasion from outer space. The Martians, yeah, we think, yeah, the Martians are coming, and that's a joke, but maybe what happens if the Martians really do come? This is, we don't want to talk about that one because that's stupid. That's ridiculous. We all know that, don't we? 
or do we? So there's the question. Do we really know this? I, I think it's, it's the, the circumstantial evidence is very, very powerful, and I'm just afraid that it, it is true. I do know that it fits the pattern. I do know that that is what they would like to do if they could. There's no question about that. And they've talked about that. They say, how wonderful it would be if we could do this, this, and this. And then you see them doing what apparently fulfills the thing that they would like to do, and you say, gee, I wonder if they're doing it. Duh, I think that is pretty self-evident. <laughs> yes. But to prove it is another thing, and people do not want to believe it, so they're not going to believe it until you do have the hardcore proof, the whistleblowers and, and the documents, and even then they probably won't believe it because it's just too horrible to believe. Well, I think we've produced some of that through some of the doctors and nurses we've had on as well as some of the information that's coming out as what's on the packaging uh, we know they're clearly lying to us about the mask issue. The, the mask packaging itself said, does it stop coronavirus? Uh, and, and we could go down a whole long line of that. This leads me to ask you, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, this issue of the Great Reset. Now, we had uh, Alex Newman on from The New American to talk about the issue that we found out with uh, the Black Lives Matter people and bringing in witches with that kind of thing and tying that into this Great Reset. And Alex has said this isn't just about a financial reset. This is about a financial. This is about a reset of culture, of values, of uh, not not just money, but of how society works. It's it's a it's a it's a pretty big undertaking, if you ask me. And I don't see how they're planning on pulling it off unless they do some of these things, whether it's control, um, depopulate, all of this stuff, kind of all at once. And then tie it into some kind of a, a digital currency to where, okay, the rest of you people who don't want to go along with the vaccine, we'll just shut you out of society where you can't buy something, you can't sell something, you can't have a job, you can't interact, you can't go to a movie, you can't do anything. Um, how do you see that coming about from this, and does that play into the whole Marxist-Leninist progression as well? Well, I, what everything you said is uh, not... There's not a question of speculation anymore. We know that everything you've said is definitely happening, and it's on the books, and it's designed to happen the way you described it. And we, the reason we know that is because the people themselves have talked about it. They've described it in great detail. Uh, just read their own stuff, their own, their own papers, their own speeches, their own video statements. Uh, you know, listen to, read the books that they write. And this is what they say that they want to accomplish, and it's been going on for a long time. It started a long time ago with such in, uh, in, innocuous uh, statements like uh, the New Deal under FDR, and then uh, I guess it was Lyndon Johnson had the Great Society, and uh, there's always some nice, great something, and it makes it sound like, oh, I can hardly wait to get the latest model of this Mercedes. You know, it sounds like, a, oh, the latest and greatest. It's the new this, the new that. It's got to be better than the old. Well, so now we have, you know, the Great Reset, well, the Great Reset is, I don't know how great it is, but it definitely is a reset. And I think the critical word is re. It's not a, a forward setting, but a backward setting. And in my, in my mind's eye, I see it a reset, a reset to, um, to the Middle Ages, uh, to uh, slavery, to, uh, you know, we, we, had, uh, we had the kings and the queens and we had the paupers, we had the, the serfs. So it's a reset to serfdom is really what it is. 
but with the with this uh, modern twist of technology added to it. That's where this technocracy comes into it. It's basically going to be serfdom, but it'll all be done with techno- uh, technical things like computer chips and digital systems. And you're right, just like the uh, Chinese have got this social credit score system now where people have to do exactly what they're supposed to do or they won't be able to get on a subway. They won't be able to get a job. Their food allotment will be cut. And that's even more effective, I think, than putting people in prison because if you're, if you're in prison... You can always have the hope of escape. <laughs> you can hopefully get out. Yeah. But once, once you, with this whole system is around you, there's where do you go? You can't go anywhere. You're in. You may not be behind, be behind bars, but you're in a bigger, more complete prison than if you were behind bars. So that's how I see it. It's definitely in in the works, and they can hardly wait. They're drooling over it. They'd like to see this all happen by about twenty thirty. I think is the date that they they see that as a realistic possibility. Now, is this uh, when you give that twenty thirty? Is this tied with the agenda twenty twenty one and uh, the agenda twenty thirty? Is that that's exactly. the time frame mm-hmm. that what you're mm-hmm. seeing on there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they tell us they they okay. give us dates. Now they sometimes move them back and forth a little bit, but right now I think they're all thinking about uh, twenty thirty might be the realistic time to wrap it all up and put the bow on it. Okay, all right. Let me let me ask you just a bit about that. Uh, people like myself, I, I despise I despise the city. I just can't stand it. Uh, I did a lot of work where I traveled around several states doing service and um, uh, rough ends in um, construction and things of that nature, mostly in apartment buildings. And I could never understand how people want to live right on top of one another. Just don't. I'm a good old country boy. I live in rural South Carolina, and so that's me. But what do they? What what would be the plans that they would have for people like me who are out in the rural? The the it seems to me the city people are somewhat easier to control um, than the people out in the rural areas. What do you see? Hap- what do you see the difference in tactics that they would uh, bring in to impose this kind of stuff on the people in the rural areas? Well, it's not what I see. It's what they say okay. because they've written papers on this. They give speeches on it. You know, if you want to know these answers, go to the, the people who are doing it and ask them, and they'll tell you. Uh, and they've dealt with that issue just the way you phrased it. What are you going to do about these hardcore uh, individualists out in the country where we can't reach them, and they might even be able to grow their own food and have their own water supply? I mean, when we can't observe them, everything they do because they're out. Out in the boonies somewhere. What do you do about those people? We we can't leave them out there, can we? And they write. That's what they say. And so the plan, uh, eventually, of course, is to uh, confiscate your property. You won't be able to live out there, and you'll you'll be brought in be- for health reasons. You know, maybe you'll be spreading disease out uh, to the wild animals, or, or COVID, right? But, <laughs> or, or COVID, yeah. Uh, they'll have that. But the the plan, I think, the most practical plan is that they will confiscate your property. And they can do that legally. And now they just say, well, this is all in the greater good uh, of the greater number. We have to do this for society for many different reasons. The environment, they'll bring the environment into it too, you know. We can't have your carbon footprint out there. And, and, and besides, you're a blight to the beautiful scenery. The wild animals are getting crowd, crowded off because you're there. All these things make it sound like their ideals are high. And, uh, of course, they keep raising your taxes 
and they won't let you improve your property. They won't repair the roads that get go out into those rural areas. So they, when the roads decay, you can't drive on them. There'll be big potholes, and storms will come along, and the roads will wash out, and they'll be gone. You can't get to the property in the country, and um, they keep fining you for violation this and fining you for violation that, and the fines are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The taxes are hundreds of thousands of dollars, and people say, I can't afford this anymore. I have, I can't stay here. And so they don't have to come with guns and bayonets and move you off. They tax you and fine you off of your property and regulate you off of your property. And don't forget, you can't improve your property. You can't even repair it, and you can't do anything unless you have a special kind of toilets that don't waste water, and you've got to put double-pane or triple-pane windows in. Otherwise, you can't patch your roof. And so they... In other words, they're using economic measures and pressures to get people out of the country, and that's a very effective way to do it. Okay, now this would fall in line with the sustainable development goals out of the UN, the Agenda 21, and stuff like that. Is that what you're referencing? Exactly. That's where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Now, we had a show on Wednesday, this morning, uh, that we're recording this, and we were bringing up the little girl that they're using as their puppet now, this little Greta. I mean, it's a shame that the parents are allowing her to be used in the way they are. But to push this whole day of, of climate change, and again, this goes back into education. I wonder if you might be, to, be able to elaborate with that, because we know that uh, Charlotte Isevert, uh, who was in the Department of Education under Reagan, she came out and pretty much blew the whistle on that. And she's talked about the deal that Reagan, you know, everybody thought Reagan is the one that brought communism down. In my mind, Reagan's the one who just kind of transferred it over here, silently claiming a victory. I mean, I don't know how you see it, but that's how I see it. And uh, she's, you know, it brings about the idea of what Khrushchev said. He says, we'll we'll defeat you guys. We'll bring you under communism without firing a shot. Is education that big of a deal? It is that big a deal. And, and again, I'm, I'm back to this Marxist-Leninist strategy. Remember, two kinds of revolution. In the name of protecting yourself against all, against all this violent overthrow of the governments and, and the dictatorships and all these ugly things that we're allowed to see. Not only allowed to see, we're encouraged to see it. They, prayed, they parade the worst aspects of communism in front of us. So we say, oh my gosh, we, we, got, we can't have that, you know? And, uh, so, and then, so who comes? Somebody on a white horse says, oh, that's terrible. I don't, I don't have to put names to it. You know, they're all over the place. They, they say the right things. They hold up the Constitution. They say, we're not going to stand for this. And what do they do? They turn around and they surround themselves with deep state people. And they surround themselves with uh, leftovers from previous administrations who, who promoted ex- exactly the opposite of what, they, what they're speaking, with their, with their rhetoric. And nothing changes. The country continues to move step by step to the left, or I should say, toward collectivism, toward collectivism, further toward collectivism, until finally we arrive at this thing called communism, but it doesn't have that name on it. It has another name on it. It might even be called Americanism. Who cares what it's called? Look at what it is. It's, it's, it's collectivism. It's the same thing we've been fighting against. And then, you know, let's get together and don't let those bad people come to power. And so then we created ourselves under a different name. It's a it's a strategy that's used over and over again, and we better wake up to it fast because we're in the last inning right now. Yeah, well, I have a friend uh, by the name of Victor Porlier. I'm not f- sure if you're even familiar with him. He was in the State Department in the 60s. Uh, he would come on on the Tuesdays. He's trying to get out uh, on, out of New York. Uh, a beautiful property up there, but him and his wife are trying to get out of there and come down here to South Carolina. And one of the things he told me was he said, look, 
He said, when the politicians come in and they pitch you the line about the economy, and that's where they're really focused, which, you know, I know the president gets the credit or the shame for however that goes, but the fact of the matter is, under our Constitution, he has nothing to do with that. He's supposed to make sure the law is faithfully executed, Article 2, Section 3. That's, all, that's really his only job except for some formalities. So Victor says, this, if somebody comes to you and they said, I'm, I'm going to build the economy up, we're going to get jobs, we're going to do all this stuff. He says they're really starting from the Marxist point of view. I found that fascinating. He said, but they're starting from the biblical or the Christian point of view if they start with justice and with the law. And, you know, we didn't have Donald Trump say he was going to bring certain justice to certain people. We've seen him in office say they're guilty as hell, they're treasonous, they've broken the law, da-da-da-da, and yet I, you didn't name anybody, but I assume this is what you're getting at. He's, he says he's going to drain the swamp, and who's all around him but CFR members, Bilderberg attendees, deep state people, and he hasn't done anything to rid them. He's sort of used them uh, sort of the way the Republicans and Democrats are. He says, well, these are the bad guys. They're, they're keeping me from doing it when the fact of the matter is Constitution doesn't mention any of those guys in the – uh, in the government, like the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, it doesn't mention any of those, but it does lay the buck to stop with him. Uh, is that what? That's what you're getting at, right? Isn't that what you're talking about there? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah, we're back to to Lenin again. <laughs> Lenin said it many ways. He said, "Comrades, tell them what they want to hear, and then when you come to power, you can betray them." That's what he said. Yep, and you know the sad reality, Mr. Griffin, is. The people, the, the very things that I pointed to during the Barack Hussein, uh, Barack Hussein Obama Satoru Sabarka administration was the same things that I point to in the Trump administration. And that's back to the law. Here's where you violated the law. And if the people don't stop, well, he's got our political jersey. They're on your side. The quote-unquote conservatives are on your side when it's the other political team. But when it's their guy wearing their jersey and he does the slam dunk of violating the law, oh, wait a minute, you're a liberal, you're a communist. And, and I just begin to wonder if those people even know what the terms mean anymore. They don't. No. How many people can define the difference between communism, fascism, and Nazism, for example? Right. They can't. And the reason they can't is because, in essence, there is no difference between them. <laughs> They're all the same. Under The ideology is collectivism on every point. And you could... You could make a list. I don't care how many points you want to make. I, I, I think there are eight very good ones. And there's the, the, each of those points are the same under communism, fascism, and Nazism, socialism, liberalism. You know, I don't care what name you put to it. New Deal, the Great, uh, the great Reset, <laughs> the, look at the United Nations uh, draft covenant on human rights. All of these, they've they got the same points. It's everywhere. And nobody questions it because uh, they don't even know what, what they're talking about. It's something they don't teach in school. It's something that's not allowed to be debated on the, on the mass uh, media. Uh, if you write a book on the topic and the publishers won't publish it, you know, if you do a video on it, you get banned <laughs> from YouTube. Right. So uh, how can people know about these things except unless it was for you and me and Guys like us. Yeah, one of the things, uh, we're getting close to the end of the show here, and I'd love it if you're willing to come back on the show. Maybe we can have you back and kind of elaborate a little more, maybe take on some other topics that you've you've dealt with. But one of the things I always point out to people is I say, you know, like in, in Germany, when Hitler came in, I mean, he was the nationalist. He was, I'm for Germany, you know, let's make Germany great again kind of thing. I want a chicken in every pot. I want two cars in every garage and that kind of stuff. And the people got behind him. 
And then when he got his power, then there's a whole different thing that's going on. Now, he recognized some problems. He pointed out the problems, but really didn't deal with the problems as much as took on the power. And the interesting thing that I find there is it was National Socialism, and he was saying it's the communists that we've got to that we've got to get out. We got to battle the communists. It's the same kind of rhetoric that I hear now coming from D.C. We've got to shut down the socialists and the communists. And this is coming from people who engage in the same kind of behaviors: buying up securities by the Treasury Department, um, the the, the red, bribing the states with gun red gun uh, red flag gun laws. Uh, spending us into debt on things that they're not authorized to spend on, wealth redistribution, fascism into corporate welfare, and all of this stuff. Are you seeing any similarities to that as well? (laughs) I see them on the inside of my eyelids when I sleep. (laughs) I wish I could not see them. It would be a lot better. Well, I, I understand that, and I think I think my point is is this. Uh, we're not doom and gloom here at the Sons of Liberty. I believe there is hope, but the solution is not in people trusting the politicians, but in people being the solution. I think our, our Constitution has given us a solution. I think it's given, us, given it to us, in, like I said before, in the form of the militia. The militia is to enforce them. They're not to be lawless. They're not to be vigilantes. They're to be there to enforce the law. Uh, that's one thing. There's other things like a nullification and interposition by the states to deal with the feds on what they're doing. But the problem is we can't find people who represent us that have enough of them that have spine to say, I'm not taking the government cheese. You guys are out of line, and we're calling you out on that, and we're going to stop this. Um, what would you say as a word of hope? We're, we're coming up on about two minutes at the end of the show. What would you say as a word of hope for people or an encouragement to, to push them forward to do what they need to do? That's an interesting question because with all of this doom and gloom going on and all of the the movement seemingly in the opposite direction, we started off earlier at some point, we talked about what's different between back in the 1960s and now. Well, what the big thing that's different is what gives me hope, and that is that people have been knocked out of their complacency. Complacency is a horrible thing to overcome. It's almost impossible to overcome. You can point to the, the, the great, greatest problems you could imagine, but if people don't feel the pain, they say, I don't, I just, nah, don't worry about it. It's going to go away. But now that people are feeling the pain, and this is what I'm afraid it needed before people will be willing to stand up and find, discover their backbone and say, this is wrong, and I'm not going to cooperate with it anymore, and I'm personally going to assume responsibility to make a a difference in the world. But now then they have to know what to look out for yes. so they don't step into those traps we've been talking about. Because those traps are waiting just for people to take that step. So we they have to have some education. So I'm going to close this with a pitch. I want people to come to our website, which is redpilluniversity.org. I want you to come over there. It's free. You can support us if you wish financially, but it's free to everybody. And we're assembling the greatest collection of information on the topics that we're talking about now that exists anywhere in the world. And first you have to understand the tricks that are, and the traps that have been set for you. And then you get your backbone up and let's go and make a difference in the world. And that means to recapture the political system. That doesn't mean guns in the streets. We'll recapture it the same way we lost it, which is through psychological programs, knowledge, truth, motivation, you know, the devotion. We have the one thing they wish they had. They've got all the money in the world because they make it. But we have the idealism. People are willing to fight and give their lives because they're defending their lives and their property. The others are doing that because they want to gain control. G. Edward Griffin, thank you so much for being on the Sons of Liberty. We'll have you back soon. See ya. Thank you.